G'day punters and welcome to Inside 50. Nick Quinn, as per usual, joined by the star of the show, Shane Crawford. G'day Crawf. Nick Quinn, great to be joining you. Just the two of us. It is. Now normally we have a third guest, a third wheel if you will, and we go through memory lane with them and talk about some of their career highlights on the footy field and what they've been doing post-footy, but I thought... I'm going to turn the attention to you this no, week, Croft. We're going to no. put you under the microscope. We're going to go Maybe down I'll memory lane with you. On you, Nick. It would be a very short podcast <laughs> talking about my sporting highlights. I kicked five against South Melbourne playing for Bo Morris in the under-11s one day. Bo Morris were always Bowie strong Sharks. the juniors. Yeah. That's it. That, that's the extent of my footy career. That's that, it. Hung him up after that. Yeah, so uh, that's it. So thank you for joining us on Tabs Inside 50. How many handballs over the top into the goal square? Oh, look, at least three. <laughs> no, I was better at watching footy than playing footy, Croft, and that's why I could appreciate guys like you. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, so let's get stuck into it. You're a superstar, 305 games for the Hawthorne Footy Club. And here's a good one. I don't know if you know the answer to this. When you joined Hawthorne, in the 15 years before that, how many premierships have the Hawks won? Well, the 15 years before that was uh, seven. Seven premierships. Seven, yeah. It is quite incredible. Is. You what? walked into a football juggernaut. I was drafted at the end of 1991. I was in year 11 at school. Um, and then Hawthorne asked me to come and finish school in Melbourne. And I didn't want to do that because I just started school at Assumption College. I'd only been there a couple of years. So... Um, I didn't want to leave my new friends. I'd made all these new friends. But when I was drafted to Hawthorne and when I arrived, all the older players were at the end. And then for 16, 17 years, I dragged Hawthorne down to a new time low um, because we we almost disappeared as a football club. We almost merged with the Melbourne Football Club. We ran out of money. All our superstar older players had come to the end, so we had to rebuild and... And no players really wanted to come to Hawthorne during that period because they weren't sure if they were going to get paid or whether or not we were the club to be a part of. And then it wasn't until in the 2000s, late into the 2000s, that we finally got our act together and, and yeah, our team uh, started to mirror what was happening off the field, on the field, and we started to have a lot of success. So I pretty much dragged the Hawthorne Football Club down for at least 15, 16 years. How did it go so wrong for the Hawks? Well, um, obviously during um, during the eighties, um, obviously super successful, winning premiership every second year, pretty much, um, and the rivalry with Essendon was incredible. But they didn't maximise, um, you know, on, on membership and and were overspending on facilities because they just upgraded. Um, yeah, it was just a bit of mismanagement. So um, obviously during the lean years, uh, during the nineties. Um, you know, memberships weren't at numbers where they needed to, to get to and um, just, I suppose, winning was just accepted. That's the way it was, whereas things started to change and things started to get really tough. And obviously when the football club sits you down at a board and says, listen, we need to merge with the Melbourne Football Club, you know, we can't continue on, um, you know, it gets diabolic. So I can still remember as a player, you'd go and train and then after that we'd have membership nights. So we'd go into the admin, we'd all get on phones and we'd be ringing, begging people to renew their membership and be a part of the football club. And we did that for a few years. I can still remember getting in there, calling a lot of people. So awkward for the players because, you know, the the members weren't happy and they would actually, you know, confront you with, you know, some pretty serious and solid questions so it was pretty, pretty confronting. But 
that's what we sort of had to do. And then along come Ian Dicker, who um, who was all business and said it's not about on field what we do, it's about off field, and and started to rebuild from there. And eventually said we can't spend a lot of money on players. Um, so we've just got to try and be as competitive as we can, but we've got to try and survive over the next few years and we can't upgrade facilities and we, we can't do a lot of things that the other clubs are doing, but we've just got to hang in there. And thankfully, um, you know, such strong management and direction, you know, they'd all married and, and come together and eventually we came out the other side. And now, you know, the football club's in an unbelievable spot they're uh, about to move to Dingley they're spending 110 million dollars on new facilities and ovals and community centers and they're not going to start building that which you're about to start digging any moment now um, until they've got all the money so they don't put themselves in debt so the club um, you know and full credit to everyone that's been a part of the rebuild um, you know is going to be a powerhouse forever which is pretty cool Tell us about the early days. You grew up one of three brothers. Your brother Justin went on to play 46 AFL games. Were you yes. a footy tragic from day dot? I, I, I loved football. Um, I loved Richmond. I was a Richmond supporter. I never really had a Richmond jumper, though, um, which I was always a bit disappointed with. Um, footy, I just have an old sort of leftover footy. But I used to, you know, even by myself, I'd be kicking the football at the power lines. I'd be kicking the footy down the showgrounds, which was right near where I lived. Um, my younger brother, when he got a little bit older, I'd start taking him on and in the backyard, and I suppose that's probably what got him going as well, because I always, you know, you'd always compete against each other, and um, yeah, I, I just love footy, and and local footy and country footy was what you sort of live for. You look forward to going along and watching the Finley Cats on a Saturday and watching the seniors take on a team like Jerrildry, the Demons, home of Billy Brownless. Um, and, you know, just a great rivalries from around the towns. It was it was pretty special and something I loved and obviously I couldn't wait to be a part of it. Were you always well above average? No, no. no my first game I wasn't – my mum wouldn't let me play because I was too small and um, and that stuck with me forever pretty much. But uh, she said, you're not allowed to play, you're too small. And then I remember going away to a place called Collie Ambly um, with the fourths um, and I was just going as – you know, just a day out. And how old were you then? Uh, I was probably six, yep. maybe. So th- this was probably under 10s or 11s. And um, so they snuck me on the field. And that's when I played my first game um, without my mum knowing because she was obviously working back at the RSL club. And, that, and that's one thing. My Like growing up in the country was amazing. Um, it's just a great little community feel. But my mum, because my dad wasn't around, so my mum was working. She'd work all day and she'd have two jobs at times and she wouldn't come along to the footy much. She was very rarely ever allowed to play, uh, come along and watch because she was always working. So I definitely miss that. But um, I do remember every time the fourths would play in Finlay, we'd play at the high school and the high school was right next to the RSL club where mum would work. And uh, sometimes when I'm playing, I could see mum looking through the, the curtain um, in the, the big sort of hall room. Um, so, you know, I always knew that she was keeping an eye on me and she always knew what was going on. So there's a little towns. If ever I got in a bit of trouble or I got into a little bit of a fight, um, which happened a few times, uh, my mum was right across it and knew exactly what was going on. What happened more frequently, the trouble or the fighting? I, I wasn't, no, not, I'm a lover, not a fighter, but uh, I've got that white line fever. Well, I used to anyway, where... No matter what it is, what sport, if it's 
you know, a game of marbles um, in the dirt. I was always super competitive and I think that was something that uh, I was very lucky to have because it, it really drove me to uh, to the highest possible level. Although, you know, I, at times I would lose my way and I had to um, I had to try and train myself to direct all my anger and frustration um, towards the next bit of play rather than trying to swing and knock someone's head off. As you got a little bit older, you continued to play your footy. When did you feel you were really good at it? And did you ever have that moment where you thought, you know what, I could go on and be a footy player myself? I It probably wasn't until I was always in sort of the, the, the best three or four, maybe even, you know, in, in local footy and then obviously in school football. But um, when I went to Assumption College uh, in year 11, I kicked 100 goals. Um, so I was sort of playing on ball, sort of half forward. Um, and that's when I thought, you know what, I think I think I can play, you know. So, um, yeah, so I just tried to dedicate my year, even leading into that, you know, training really hard, giving myself every chance to, to see how good I could possibly be. So that's when I started to believe in myself a bit. And then off the back of that, only a few months later, um, I was drafted to go and play with Hawthorne. How big was the jump going to boarding school? It, oh, it was huge. Like I, I was ready to get out of Finlay because Finlay's a, a great little country town, but you know, after a while you want to go and scratch the surface and see what else is out there. Um, and you know, I just knew it was a great sporting school, cricket and, and football and, and athletics, you know, that was probably going to suit my lifestyle. So I remember at the time it was either head, uh, you know, towards Melbourne, Kilmore and go to Assumption College or go to a, uh, a college in New South Wales called Yanko, which um, which obviously wasn't football-based. But um, it was a flip of the coin, but I kept, you know, I had a few friends and a few, um, you know, people I was familiar with from around the area went to Assumption College and they spoke so highly about it. And then, yeah, I, I remember asking my mum and if I could go away to boarding school and I knew the answer was probably going to be no because we didn't have any money. So... Um, you know, she thought about it and I think she realised that's my best chance of doing something, uh, for, you know, with my life. And, um, yeah, so she went and got another job. So she worked two jobs to send me away to boarding school, either that or she really wanted to get me out of the house. <laughs> and yeah, so I went, I went off to boarding school. It was just, I, I loved it. I, I loved, uh, the connection of the football and, and Ray Carroll, who's, who was a great coach, but it was all about tradition and you know the past and never forgetting you know um you know what it's all about and the spirit of playing together and and being a team sort of focus with everything you do from a sporting point of view I, I just absolutely loved it it was something that um you know I'll never forget and something that I really appreciate and the, the standard obviously went from country football to a whole different level and even in the seniors in year 11 were playing against you know, men. So they would organise games against local football clubs in the pre-season, even during the season as a friendly type thing just to bring sort of um, old boys back together. Uh, so we, we started playing against men in year 11 and year 12. So that certainly helps you when you make that transition at Hawthorne. How'd you go with the structure? The structure at boarding school? Um, pretty good. Yeah. Although... You know, we'd have prayers every night, which was which was a new one for me. And then also we'd have study every night. So you'd have to go, 
you'd have your dinner and then you'd virtually make your way back down to the classrooms and you'd sit in a classroom, um, no talking, you know, for an hour, an hour and a half at times. So if you're not doing anything, it can be a pretty long hour and a half. So you actually started doing your homework and or writing love letters back to my girlfriend. Um S- you know, which plural? <laughs> no, no. But um, we were all in the same situation. You know, we all had girlfriends from local towns, so um, you know you could tell when someone in the study was writing a love letter. They'd be full of concentration and making sure the teacher doesn't come along or the brother comes along and, and takes the letter off us. But um, yeah, no, it was fun. We're all in it together. We we're like we're virtually off to prayers, off to study, off to training. Um, off to you know supper and supper because the food was never great so supper after study was the best because they just give you bread and they'd give you milk and we I reckon we used to smack six to eight pieces of bread each every night and that's what we lived off just bread with jam uh, and milk I remember one of my mates actually he was first into the ref and then he started drinking a full litre milk and one of the brothers walked in and caught him. So the brother said, right, you finish that. So we all sat around and watched him drink, <laughs> four, try and drink four litres of milk. Uh, it was a highlight, obviously something I've never forgotten because most of it came back out. But <laughs> it was something that we uh, yeah, certainly talk about. Even to this day, we still talk about remember the day or remember the night. Um, that happened. So um, a lot of fun. But um, it certainly held me in good stead and did give me great structure and give – did sort of discipline me to be at school on time, you know, be organised with, uh, you know, being on time for study and training and all sorts of things. So it certainly helped. So after having that great year at Assumption, you've pretty quickly gone on Hawthorne's radar. They make getting you a priority. You elected not to go to the Hawks in year one. What was it like, though, when Hawthorne showed an interest? And it doesn't sound like it was too tough a decision for you to postpone going to Hawthorne because you knew it would be there in a year later, but you had an extra year at your school and with your friends. Yeah, even when I was drafted, I wasn't I wasn't too concerned because I thought, oh, I've got year 12. You know, if it doesn't work out for me, I've got year 12. I'll make sure that, you know, I, I become an even better footballer next year. So Hawthorne, I can't even really remember meeting with Hawthorne, um, you know, whether or not they spoke to the coach, but I, I don't really remember having great conversation, you know, with them about going to Hawthorne. And I remember the Blues were really interested, North Melbourne were really interested. They asked about moving my mother um, down to Melbourne. Would I live with her? And would she do that? And then also Sydney had a priority pick, or they had priority picks because I'm a New South Wales boy. So I was shattered that Sydney didn't take me because you know I would have loved to have gone to the Sydney Swans. So I, I was always a bit disappointed. And every time I played Sydney um, down the track, I always kept that up my – or kept that in my memory bank because I thought, you know what, I'll make sure I'll show them, what you know, that they missed out on a player who could hopefully be a good contributor. So um, – yeah, yeah, it was interesting times, but I was so glad I finished year 12 with my mates. Um, does, Academically-wise, doesn't mean that I was able to go into university and do all those things, but I just made these new friends that I'd known for a couple of years who I just loved, and we had such a wonderful time, and um, yeah, I couldn't imagine going to another school and just finishing year 12. And, you know, that I suppose that year I came down and played a few reserves games when we had holidays. And I played well in one of them. I kicked uh, some goals and, and I was one of the better players. 
and I knew that they wanted to put me in the seniors. So I spoke to Ray Carroll, our coach, and um, Alan Joyce wanted to put me into the seniors the next week and we were playing Essendon. So that would have been my first game. And obviously I would have been at high, uh, college, um, year 12, and um, they they went against it because they just thought oh, I was a bit too, too disruptive because you've got all these players who have trained together and been together for a long time, yet I haven't been a part of this club. I'm coming in off the holiday period, and then I'm going to play a game. So um, that's when I thought, okay, I'm in the ball game. You know, they're really considering me being a part of the senior football, and that's when I started to believe. That winter chill is right around the corner, but the AFL is only heating up. And so is Tab's Same Game Multi, where you can combine your favourite AFL markets, like head-to-head, anytime goal kicker and total disposals, all in the one bet to get bigger odds. It's available all season long on the Tab app and website. Build your same game multi with Tab today. Tab, long may we play. Available online for Tab account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help, 1-800-858-858. And you finish year 12 and then you go to Hawthorne properly. What was it like going through that famous club at the start with all those superstar names right at the back end of the career? I, even just running laps and you, you look at Chris Langford, who looks like Superman running next to you, or Gary Ayres, you know, you're thinking, how on earth am I going to tackle someone like that? Or Paul Deere, who is a massive centre-half forward. You know, Dermot Brereton rocking up, you know, either on his Harley Davidson or on his Ferrari. Um, you know, it, it was just a, a different world. John Platten would rock up in his, his hotted-up Holden. Um, yeah, it, it was just a different, very much a surreal thing. And I, I didn't say a word. I just went to work. I just thought, okay, just train and work and... One thing Ray Carroll did say to me, my Assumption College, he said, oh, AFL's a bit different um, to, you know, what you've been playing. And I wasn't sure what he was meaning. But then he said, he said, you've got to, you've got to look after yourself. He said, everyone sort of looks after themselves, you know. And he said, there's a lot of individuals and there's a lot of sort of you know, people who look after their own little patch. Um, so he said, you've got to stand up to yourself or for yourself and just be very wary um, that everyone wants your spot, you know, and it's it's a little different. And so I'm like, wow, okay, this is this is interesting because you go to a team thinking everyone's going to be in a team and supportive and right behind each other, which they were, but, you know, at the end of the day is if I come in, you know, I've got to push someone out of the side. So um, no one likes that and no one wants that, especially when it's a dream for everyone to be a part of it. And my, my first training session, I remember having a punch on with Andy Collins. Um, you know, we did a, punch, a, a boxing session at the end where we were just hitting the stomach and I kept slipping through and then hitting him in the jaw. Um, hot summer's day and he had his top off. And then I remember the whistle going at the end and somehow Andy Collins and myself were in the circle and we were just swinging at each other. And that was pretty much my introduction. And from what Ray Carroll had told me, stand up for yourself and don't, you know, if someone gets on the front foot, don't take a backward step, you know, that's a great way of showing that, you know, you're committed and whatever happens, happens, but they'll respect you for that. And that's that's the way that I attacked it. I thought, all right. So, yeah, it wasn't really the way you wanted to start your your, your training days, but that's that's what it was and, you know, I've got great love for Andy Collins now. I just think he's a very special person, a very good coach, and he was a great teammate. And he just he was one of those players that, that would play with his 
heart and soul on the line, but he'd also train like that as well. Even in practice matches, you play on him, you knew we're going to be punching on at some stage. But How'd I that love go that. down with the senior players when you got in the blue with him? Oh, I had Darren Jarman and Ray Jenke and and a few others come up and and say, "Don't worry, that's he's just like that," <laughs> you know. So they they were very supportive, but um, but I think they liked me standing up for myself as well. So I think. You know, if any young kid coming through and starting out their AFL career, I'm like, if ever you think, you know, older players trying to intimidate you, the best thing you can do is just stand up to them and, you know, and show that you're not going to take a backward step. And I guarantee you they'll give you the respect, you know, for the rest of their career and they'll really admire that. If you take a backward step, they'll try and bully you. So you've gone into a Hawthorne team two years removed from winning a premiership. Was the level of expectation that the good times would just continue? Or did you sense at the time it was starting to be a bit of an ageing list and there was going to be a bit of a decline over the coming years? No, we, we were still pretty good. Like, we made the final. So I, I still felt that, oh, you know, have a look at the players. We got, we're going to be okay. Um, and the, for a long time they used to say, Hawthorne, too, too old, too slow. No, was it too – what was it? Too – yeah, too old, too slow. Anyway, so um, and that that group uh, before I got there was pigeonholed with you know being a, a slow football team. Yet they kept winning all the premierships. So um, no, I, I just felt if we clicked in the gear, um, we would just keep on winning. But um, you know, little did I know it was it was a hard thing because they were all finishing in, at the same time. So it was hard for the football club to make sure they respectfully. Ended careers, but also um, allowed them to do it on their own terms because they've been such wonderful players. So that was that was a difficult thing when you you know you have so many amazing players going out at once. That's a massive hole, especially when they've been you know three, four, five day um, you know Premiership players. That's that's huge holes. You mentioned Dermot Brereton. He was there when you started. Not long mm-hmm. after, he was shipped off to Sydney and then finished his career at Collingwood. What was he like in those early days, and what was it like <laughs> when he got moved on? Well, early days, he was just, you know, a ball of fun and, and just very lovable, um, which which is what he is. He used to come in his leather jacket and hit his, you know, perms, blonde peroxide hair, um, you know, larger than life. And you always knew when Dermot was around. I can still remember when he, he grabbed one of the trainers, one of the old fellas, and tipped him upside down and put him in a green bin and broke his rib um, just in the training room. <laughs> Obviously, accidentally, but... You know, that was that was Dermot. And Johnny Platten, he'd always harassed Johnny Platten, you know. Um, so they had a great love-love love relationship. But, um, yeah, you always knew when he was around. Uh, he, he just wasn't able to play much. You know, his hip was really struggling him. He's always in the, um, the rehab room. But you could see mentally he wanted to be out there. And, and also he's played a lot of football um, being injured. But uh, even then, you know, a debilitating hip injury was, you know, it was too hard for him to get out and playing. That, that's, you know, that was a disappointing thing. But when you play with guys like Chris Langford, Jason Dunstall and John Platten and Darren Pritchard, Darren Jarman, Ben Allen, Anthony Condon, oh my, my goodness, yeah, Anthony, Andy Collins, like that, that's incredible really when you think about that. And so I was very, very lucky to, to see the way that they would go about it. And, you know, Darren Pritchard, for me, was one that would always train really, really hard. And it, it, It's funny because Alan Jeans, Alan Jeans was a family friend. Um, he grew up in Tokemal and Finley's only about a 10-minute drive down the road. Um, 
and he knew my mother and he knew my grandmother and he came down, like he watched me at school and I think he was a part of me getting to um, Hawthorne and then he'd come down to watch training when I started with Hawthorne and I ran over to him at the boundary, he was just there by himself and I said, oh, what did you think? And he said, you don't train hard enough. That was, a, And I'm like, wow, really? Because I prided myself on training hard or lots. I prided myself on training lots. So he said, um, you're not training hard enough. When the, when the football's come out, you've got to be going flat out. Like you, you've got to play and you've got to train like you're in a game, going flat out, marking the footballs, handing it off. Don't go back to the end of the line. Come to the front, go again. You know, he said, watch Darren Pritchard. You know, why is he such a good player? Look at the way he trains. Look at the way Tony Hawk trains. And if you watch the way they train, when they're even doing lane drills, they are going flat out, running through the football, kicking the ball under pressure. And, you know, that was probably the biggest change for me. So from then on, I thought, okay, when I train, I train. I go flat out regardless. And, um, you know, I'll always be forever grateful for those words. Now, you hit the ground running. Your second game of AFL was against Sydney. You kicked a bag of goals against the Swannies, a team that yes. didn't select you up at the SCG. Yep. So it must have been very satisfying and great for the confidence to know there and then you could do it. Yeah, that, that game was interesting because John Platten pulled out. So John Platten was a starting on baller, and I was forward pocket, told to, especially at Waverley, Start on the 50-metre line out on the boundary. So virtually saying, stay out of the way of Jason Dunstall. I'm like, wow. So we went to Sydney and then um, John Platten was sick and they said, you're going to start on ball. So I played virtually all day on ball, which uh, I'm one of their malacalluses. I don't know which one, but <laughs> there was two of them. And, um, yeah, it was great. I kicked, I kicked some goals and um, I played really well. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'll show this Sydney committee that you know they should have picked me and um yeah it, it was it was great we had a good win and and yeah that's when I, I started to to realize I can do this and um you know just got to keep working and, and hopefully you know keep presenting and you just never know where you may go with it all. Now we mentioned that Hawthorne won the 91 grand final and they did make the finals for the next five years what are your memories like of 1994? The team went 13-9 and nine, but went into the finals, tipped as a team that could go very deep and then came up against North Melbourne in that extraordinary game that went to extra time out at Waverley. Yeah, and I I pulled out of the morning because I was, had the flu and I was absolutely devastated because um, obviously Waverley suits my style of footy where you, where you can run into those spaces. But, yeah, obviously being a, a draw and I was sitting on the bench virtually watching the game, it was yeah, it was incredible. And and we just knew that the longer the game goes, that's not a, a great sign because, you know, Wayne Carey, you know, he can have an impact before you know it. And, um, you know, a lot of those players, I think John Longmire was playing at the time as well. But that was an incredible final. Um, I think we put everything we had out there um, – you know, it was probably a, an unexpected victory if we were able to get across the line, but um, you know, it was it was disappointing to to end that way. But I was also so proud of the group because I, I don't think I was the only one that pulled out. I think there was someone else who pulled out that morning as well, which really throws you around because um, you know we had a pretty uh, pretty settled lineup with the way that we went about things. So I think there was a 
Might have might have even been Andy Collins, but there was a player that pulled out as well. So I know there was two two changes which threw the side around a little, but they adapted fairly well because they started well. A lot of people said at the time it was the changing of the guard, North the up and coming side, and Hawthorne at the decline. Did you feel that at the time, or did you think no, that's okay, good preseason? We had a couple out today. We'll be back next year. You, you always think preseason that you're going to go okay, you know, because you, you're all training hard. You know, everyone's trying to improve. So, yeah, every preseason you always think that you can do a little bit better. There's always a couple of new players that come in, a couple of traded players who have played well at other clubs. So you're always very hopeful. But, you know, once you're in the football bubble, you don't get very realistic about a lot of things because, um, you know, even if we're going to struggle, the coaches are going to try and avoid, you know, us really understanding and knowing, you know, where things are going. They're always trying to make you believe that, we can be highly competitive and, and be in a lot of matches. But you always yeah, you always go into the start of the season, regardless of how poor you've been, thinking you can do a little bit better. And over the next few years, as your star continued to shine, the team unfortunately went the other way. In 1995, the team went 7-15. and 15. In 1996, a year that was much discussed for all the off-field issues, the Hawks went 11-10-1 and, and then lost the qualifying final to Sydney and then got nowhere near the finals in 97, 98 and 1999. Now... On one hand, you look back at that time and your footy was outstanding and many would say you played the best footy in your career, but it must have been challenging because it's when the Hawks were struggling and going through that unintentional rebuild. Yeah, yeah, it's always tough. 96, we, I can still remember playing Melbourne Football Club. It's probably one of the only games that I can really remember. And, um, you know, there was the unknown. They weren't sure if, if um, you know, the Demons were going to merge with the Hawks. What do you get? The Hellborn Dorks. The Dorks, yeah. So, um, so that match was so significant. Um, you know, it, it was it was a neat. David Neitz kicked a seven or eight goals. Uh, Jason Dunstall kicked ten goals, including his hundredth goal. This is on a Friday night. Um, you know, we had to win to stay alive. You know, and, and head towards the finals. And the Demons weren't sure if it was their last game as the Melbourne Demons. Chris Langford walked off with his top off, holding it up to the crowd, saying, you know, and that's not very unlike Chris Langford, but he's like, don't lose this club. So that was that was such a significant match for me um, and just being a part of it. It had, if you go back and watch that match, Melbourne versus Hawthorne, it was an unbelievable match because it had everything going and especially a lot of history with two clubs almost disappearing. Um, and then obviously heading to the finals. And then after that, it was like we were hanging on for dear life because we knew that um, we knew that no money was being spent on encouraging players to come to our football club and, and you know, no huge contracts were being thrown out there. And we just had to try and financially find a way to, to be better organised and, and better off the field. And, and then when we felt like that was improving, then we could go and try and encourage players to come to our football club. And a lot of players at the time who weren't involved with the Hawthorne Football Club didn't want to come because they knew that we were struggling. They knew that they weren't sure if they were going to get paid. Um, I think even during those, I, I think I've actually got paid at the end of the year. So, you know, that's when you you don't get paid all year, whereas these days, you know, they get paid weekly pretty much. Um, but... Yeah, so that's sort of how it, it all went. And, and even then, you know, you get to November, and you're still asking questions, you know, and some places are we, what's happening with our pay? So, 
you know, that football club wasn't too enticing to go to at that time, but it was hanging in there. And, and Ian Dicker obviously came on board. You know, he had Don Scott standing up there and, and being super proud and trying to save the club and a lot of great people, um, you know, putting all their efforts into to keeping the football club alive. Um yeah, it was it was a slow grind, but you know what? As players, you just get on with it. You just try and find a way. You could always see, you know, a positive out of so many negatives, and that's the way that we just treated it. Well, on the back of a few tough years, we go to 1999, and a game that lives very fondly in the heart of many, many Hawthorne supporters. Round 12 against St Kilda, 63 points down at Waverley. And I couldn't help myself. I went to watch a few of the highlights last night and watched the whole game. It was unbelievable. Walk us through that day, 63 points down, and then the team runs in 10 goals in the third quarter to totally flip it on its head. Yeah, it was that was pretty cool because Waverley, Waverley's such a big oval. So it's not easy to kick 10 goals in a quarter. Um, and, you know, back then, footy, it was pretty hard to come from a long way back. Um, although there was man-on-man football pretty much the way that uh, everything was done. But I remember um, Tim Watson was coaching St Kilda. Um, first 20 minutes, I thought, they're trying to knock my head off. Um, <laughs> like, they really targeted me. And we were on the back foot. You know, they were just dominated. They were everywhere. And and also going at half time, we were getting absolutely walloped. Um, but it, it, it's funny because we just, we just thought that they, they – bullied us by the way they went about things and we just got on the back foot and were so reactive but we didn't feel like I, I wouldn't say oh you go in and say oh no we can win this but it's like no we, we can get ourselves back into this we can kick some goals and you know they're not that good um, you know we've just made them look uh, ultra impressive and then then we just come out with a totally different mindset we uh, I think at the time um, we even spoke about you know, boys, just just turn around, just go hunting, go hunting, and 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 just full on attack. Let's just go at the moment. You know, they've embarrassed us by the way we've gone about things, and you know we're much better than that. We know that, and that's what happened. We just—it's amazing what happens when you just charge at the football, put all your focuses on getting the football, get a bit of scoreboard pressure, and all of a sudden, you know, one, two, three goals just start rolling, and then you find the opposition get a touch negative. They get a touch tighter. They don't play as free-spirited as they had been. And, and all of a sudden, we're back into it. But they were very lippy. They were very mouthy. And I can still remember, um, you know, a few years later after that game, speaking to Spider Everett, who was playing for St Kilda at the time, but then he came across to Hawthorne. And I said, with that match, I said, I said, Are you guys targeting me? <laughs> and he said, yeah. He said, your name was up there and highlighted big red texter. You know, take you out of the game. So, yeah, we were told to take you out of the game. And I've even brought up with Tim Watson many a time. I said, why would you try and take me out of the game? I said, that's unfair. That's not very sportsmanship-like, you know, Tim. Um, And, yeah, it was just incredible for us to find a way to get across the line and win. Um, it, It was pretty an amazing, it was pretty incredible victory. When you look at everyone who did contribute right across the, the field, which they did, but then I can remember walking off at Waverley. We're arm in arm, Assumption College style. That's how we used to sing our song. We'd all link arms and walk off the field singing the song, which doesn't really happen in the AFL. But 
we did that at that time because it just meant so much and, and gave us a bit of hope about the rest of the year and the future. Was that your favourite win outside the Premiership? Uh, favourite favorite because, um, you know, because when, when you run around a football field and you know that everyone's, if they can, they're trying to line you up and, and take you out, it does get fairly satisfying because you can have the last laugh. But uh, we're probably more exhausted than anything because, um, you know, that was one thing that with my game is if I wasn't exhausted by the end of it, I always felt that I haven't given everything that I've got. So uh, most of the time you're just happy to get back into the rooms and, and start reflecting from there. But, um, yeah, it was pretty special. Now, watching the replay, it stood out to me two things. How different Daniel Harford looks with hair. And, my God, could he <laughs> celebrate a goal? Because he t- kicked two absolute game-changing goals. But he celebrated like a soccer player. It was superb. He was an extra- extremely gifted player, Daniel Harford. Unbelievable skills. Fantastic around a stoppage. Um, but, you know, beautiful skills. Could really hit a target under pressure. And, yeah, he's, he's definitely in my top three or four skilled players I've ever played with. Um, he could just do a lot of things. He had great chemistry, um, you know, with the Ruckman and, and great understanding around a stoppage. And, um, yeah, he, he was a very gifted player. He works now on RSN 927 and has a lot of other media commitments. He's on 3AW. He does stuff on Fox Footy. He coaches the AFLW team. And everyone <laughs> loves him. I'm always amazed with his energy. It could be five in the morning. He's still happy. He's still energetic. What was he like to be around? Was he always that ball of life? Or did he get a bit narky from time to time that he doesn't do these days in the media? No, but he was a low draft pick when he first came. So we, we saw him, you know, low draft picks, you like... You know these boys can play, but he came off a broken leg, so he came virtually with a a leg in plaster at the time. But we couldn't believe how confident <laughs> one young player could be. Like I remember my first couple of years, I didn't say boo. I just whatever I was told, I did it. Whereas you know he came in like he owned the joint, and we love that because he still rocks into places like he owns the joint. And um, you know it's that that confidence and belief and I can understand why because he he certainly could play. That winter chill is right around the corner but the AFL is only heating up. And so is Tab's Same Game Multi where you can combine your favourite AFL markets like head-to-head, anytime goal kicker and total disposals all in the one bet to get bigger odds. It's available all season long on the Tab app and website. Build your Same Game Multi with Tab today. Tab, long may we play. Available online for tap account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help, 1-800-858-858. That 1999 season, very special for you. You went into the Brownlow medal count, which was held in Sydney that year, as the hot favourite. What were the nerves like? Very nervous because if you don't win, you feel like you failed when I knew that I'd had a really good year. <laughs> so, um, you know, and you're not sure. You, don't, you just don't know if, if the umpires are going to give you the three votes. So... You know, it is quite nerve-wracking, especially when, you know, I was one of the shortest price favourites um, ever in the history of the Brownlow. So you're expected to win. And, like, I was even asked if I wanted to take my mother. And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> because I thought if I don't win, my mum, she'll be shattered for yeah. me, you know. So I'm like, oh, I just don't need all this pressure. Uh, but it was obviously a very special night. I knew the second half of my year was really strong. It's just whether or not I could get some votes early and keep, give myself a bit of a chance. And 
um, yeah, it was a dream come true because, you know, as a young kid, you wanted to play AFL football and, well, I did. And then, you know, I wanted to win a Brownlow medal um, just because that's what players used to do is try and win a Brownlow medal. So it was pretty special, um, you know, a dream coming true, which which doesn't often happen to a lot of people. So, and it was in Sydney for the first time. So I had a handful of teammates. I was disappointed it was in Melbourne because... I would have loved all my teammates to be able to come to an after party and enjoy themselves. But what I did, the AFL put on an after party, so I had, um, so I virtually opened it to the whole room. So I had players from all different clubs, and I know I've spoken about it before. You know, Hutchie was there. He got chased out of the room by Paul Salmon. Um, <laughs> he was going to knock his block off. Hutchie was doing the media back then, and Paul Salmon obviously didn't get a positive review or article um, at some stage. <laughs> But yeah, it was just uh, it was it was wonderful, and that that like when I look back at that year, I'm like, I won a lot of things. I won three cars, like I won, um, you know, a trip overseas uh, to New York. Um, I won another holiday up to Queensland. Um, you know, I won some money, but the three cars I gave my brother, hotted up Ute Holden Ute. My mum got the Mitsubishi, and I got the. Uh, the big Nissan Patrol, which I really wanted, but then because it was seen as earnings, I obviously couldn't ask mum and my brother for the cars back, so I'm like, I'm going to have to sell the Nissan Patrol to pay tax on those other two. <laughs> so, so that's what happened. I'm like, oh, hang on, I wanted to keep the big Nissan Patrol. So it, it was a pretty cool year. I, I won a lot of things, and um, it doesn't happen now like that. You know, there's, there's not all those cars being thrown around, so it was a pretty special time. The night of the Brownlow, as you said, the second half of the year you're expected to poll a lot of votes. The first four rounds you polled in each and every one of them, did that really calm the nerves? Because you're on seven votes after four rounds and it was a bit iffy whether you were going to poll there. So were you starting to feel pretty good about things early doors? No, not at all. Um, you want to see some votes. You'd like to see some threes. Yep. Uh, there wasn't a lot of threes. And being in a team that um, you know, didn't finish in the top four or five, that makes it, you know, a little bit difficult because sometimes, you know, depending on who's winning the games, you know, it tends to lean, you know, the, the victor's way. So I knew that was certainly, you know, there's still a bit of doubt. But the thing is, the second half of the year, we won a few games, we finished with a lot of momentum and um, my form, I felt, was pretty good. So, you know, you just, hope, fingers crossed that I wasn't arguing with any umpires on those days and... Um, you know, they were kind enough to give me their three vote. And with a few rounds to go, you had it sewn up. Was it relief? Was it excitement? It was relief, yeah, it was, because, you know, all the build-up, even for, you know, we'd been finished for three or four weeks and all the talk around the Brownlow medal. So that's just bubbling behind the surface and then you just, you're just hoping. You're like, oh, please, let's just get this out of the way. Um, so <laughs> put me out of my misery. But um, look, with... Winning, it's um, it, it, for me, yes, it was a dream come true, but what it actually did for my little country town was incredible because it actually put them on the map. Um, Mum said in the week leading up, they they decorated the whole street and then their shops, you know, go crawf and, you know, really getting behind, you know, a local. And um, it meant a lot to them. So I remember they crossed to my mum at the Finlay RSL Club. She was there with my grandfather um, a lot of friends and a lot of familiar faces, um, and that was pretty cool. So I put them on the map, 
everyone felt really proud and so much so that even if you drive through Finlay now, it says Crawford Town, you know, welcome to Crawford Town, you know, home of the 1999 Brownlow medalist with a few bullet holes and a few scratches. But, <laughs> but that's, that's a country sign. So that's pretty cool. Well, that's a look at your 90s career. We're going to do two parts, 90s and noughties, and the noughties is the 2000s, not yes. what you got up to after hours, although that would we, be another good podcast. We, we did have plenty of footy trips during the 90s, which uh, yep, which was pretty good, travelling overseas to different destinations and feeling like you're free. Best teammate <laughs> on a footy trip in the 90s? Oh, the best teammate. Would, Mark Graham, he really got into the spirit no matter where we went. He'd, he'd always go with a the dress-up theme, uh, even to nightclubs and... Um, he was certainly one. Um, Jason Dunstall, I tried to avoid a fair bit. Um, just because once he starts having a few drinks, I'm like, I'm out of here. So I'd go and find myself on the other side. Um, but we'd always have a lot of fun. And um, that's when you'd learn more about your teammates than ever. And you'd come back next preseason, and, you know, you obviously had a tighter connection and a better bond because you're travelling the world together. Having a lot of fun and making those friendships, which no doubt comes in very handy as you're getting punished on the track in the preseason. I tell you, do you know what? I do remember going to New Orleans, um, which in my early days, and Brad Scott was a part of our team at the time, um, who obviously went to coach North Melbourne, now works for the AFL. <laughs> I remember I must have gone home reasonably early, like I'm two or three in the morning, but then. I remember around breakfast, they go, Scotty had a few issues last night. He got mugged. So he got mugged walking home, which we were told not to do in New Orleans. Don't walk back to your hotel. And sure, I think he was with Luke McCabe at the time, but he he virtually got surrounded and told, hand over your wallet, and (laughs) got mugged on the streets in New Orleans. (laughs) You're laughing as you tell it. I am laughing because he didn't have a lot of success on, um, on footy trips because the next year we went over to Phuket. And the very first day we got there, we're all at the beach. He gets on a jet ski and Luke McCabe jumps on a jet ski as well, the two of them. They go hit a wave and they smash into each other. They break these jet skis, so four or $5,000 worth of damage. And these guys, you know, Scotty was off on a sup list, so he was struggling for cash. So we had to do the hand around to try and help him out to uh, make him realise that this – this footy trip's not going to cost him a fortune. We're going to get him through. So he had a bit of bad luck on footy trips. Do you look back on some of the things you did on footy trips and they're relatively harmless stories, but think, my goodness, what we were thinking, how do we get through that? Yeah, a lot, you know, especially when you're all coming together. And the worst thing is going to a pub, and I know they do that here sometimes. They go, oh, we'll put you in the pub together. We'll lock everyone out. That's disaster. Because you're sitting around a pub and you're looking for things to do. The best thing about going overseas, at least you can go to festivals and, you know, you go to Vegas. There's, there's things to do. It's just when you're sitting in a pub with your mates, that's just trouble. You're just looking at each other. What can we do next? Then you start wrestling each other and then all of a sudden there's fights start happening. You, you've got to have things going on. And that's one thing I've learned is if you're ever going to organise a day, You've got to be doing things. Yep. You can't be just sitting around. Like sitting around at the end of the night around a campfire is quite nice, but you've got to be doing things in the meantime. Otherwise, you're just looking for trouble. <laughs> this might be a third podcast series, I think. Croft's Guide to a Postseason. <laughs> Croft, it's been an absolute pleasure today. Love talking about the 1990s part of your career. Looking forward to getting into the 2000s next time we do it. No worries, Brad. And punters, you've been listening to Inside 50. <laughs> Thank you
That winter chill is right around the corner, but the AFL is only heating up. And so is Tab's Same Game Multi, where you can combine your favourite AFL markets like head-to-head, anytime goal kicker and total disposals, all in the one bet to get bigger odds. It's available all season long on the Tab app and website. Build your Same Game Multi with Tab today. Tab. Long may we play. Available online for Tab account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help. 1-800-858-858.